This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. First session of this afternoon is going to be a panel discussion with a moderator. The moderator is Peter Stock, or as we call him at UCSF, Superdoc. So every Monday we have a selection committee, and the discussion is always serious, uh, sometimes contentious, occasionally irreverent, but basically the aim is always to try to make the best decision for the patient in terms of their eligibility on the wait list, and also uh, we use these sessions to try to best allocate uh, kidneys, especially in the new kidney allocation system. So Peter Stock is going to be reviewing the new kidney allocation system, its impact on the wait list, and then we'll have the panel to take some example and discuss them. So hopefully it will be very interactive. Please interrupt if you have questions and so on as it goes along. Peter? Well, thank you. And uh, Flavio, just uh, when you want me to stop, you, you want, we'll, we'll go on for 50 minutes, and if you uh, want to pull the hook before then, just say so. So um, in, in, this, in this 50 minutes, I want to go through how the new allocation system is, um, the decisions that we face when we get organ offers, and um, uh, some, of the, some of the problems that we have um, in trying to decide whether it's the right kidney for the right patient. And, and we really want your input and we really want you uh, to be involved in the decision-making um, because your patients will ask you, what is the right thing to do? What kind of a kidney should I be willing to accept? And in the brief period of time that we see them, whether it be um, an hour at the time of um, uh, the evaluation where, where they're inundated with information, um, or whether it be uh, in the RECI prior to when we do the transplant, um, it is really, uh, you know, I've been learning this stuff for 30 years, and, and it's still confusing to me. So I have no idea how a patient can take this in in, in, in three hours that we do an evaluation. Um, so I've had some volunteers, um, some reluctant volunteers, but some, some enthusiastic volunteers. So uh, first of all, uh, uh, Gopal Krishna from um, Salinas, thank you very much for being enthusiastic, the only enthusiastic participant in the panel. Dr. Chris Fries, um, I have Allison Weber, and uh, uh, our, one of our star nephrologists, and uh, Janine Sabate-Caspio. Janine has been with UCSF longer than me. And uh, she understands this process better than anyone else, and she's the person who's on the phone at 2 in the morning trying to figure out what this list means. So I'm going to ask them all questions. I'm going to ask you questions and uh, make this a little interactive. So um, I asked this. uh, I brought this slide up uh, the last time I talked about the new allocation system. Believe it or not, it's been going since uh, 2015 is when it fully got put into place. And that was after a committee... Uh, of which I was in the original committee, it took over 10 years to come up with a new allocation um, system because it really, uh, everybody feels differently about how kidneys should be allocated. Should it be by justice? Anybody should have access. Justice means that if you're 65 years old, you have the same access to a kidney as somebody who's 25 years old. If you're 65 years old and are projected to live 
um, only five years because of severe cardiovascular disease, you have the same access as a 20-year-old with glomerulonephritis. That is a pure justice system. Then there's utility, which is uh, who's going to get the best bang for the kidney, the best bang for the buck. And then there's an efficiency question. So let me just start with the coordinators, the nurse practitioners and the coordinators who are in the audience, um, especially those of you who are involved in the whole process. What one of those three things um, do you think is most important? Just raise your hand. How many think justice? How many think utility? And how many think efficiency? Uh, Okay, well... Uh, most people were, went with utility. Um, now let, let's go to the uh, nephrologists in the crowd. What, what do you think? How many for justice? How, justice is any equal access for everybody. Doesn't matter. It's basically wait time. Get in line for the kidney. Doesn't matter if you're young, old, sick, healthy. Dialysis, no dialysis. Okay, uh, utility. And efficiency. Okay, so, um, and let's go to our panel here. Chris. Justice. I mean, that utility. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Gopal. Utility. Utility. Janine. Allison. So, yeah. Okay. okay, so now you understand why it took 10 years to come up with an allocation system. And, um, just so you understand a little bit about the, the way things used to be. Livers still are allocated on the basis of need. Who's going to die without a liver transplant? Um, and it's based on something called the MELD score, which is driven by, now there's serum sodium in there, but serum creatinine, bilirubin, and INR. For kidneys, it's used to be driven almost entirely by waiting time with a little component of um, uh, antibodies, a little component of HLA matching, and um, there was one alternative list, and it was called extended criteria donors. Um, <clears throat> now, standard criteria donors were uh, donors, um, th- those donors were allocated by waiting time, um, mostly by waiting time, a little bit by PRA if patients were sensitized, and a little bit by HLA matching. Extended criteria donors were only allocated by um, uh, waiting time. So what was the old definition of an extended criteria donor? Um, Anyone, any donor over the age of 60 was considered an extended criteria donor. So if if, uh, your um, patient was over the age of 55 or 60 um, and and the donor was over 60, um, if they had consented to an ECD kidney, they would get that kidney. Now, as I have now, unfortunately, I'm an ECD, um, I, I sort of think my kidney's okay. Um, but those kidneys are no longer considered ECDs. And that you have to keep in mind when the patient asks you, should I sign up for an extended criteria donor, an older donor? It's not just over the age of 60. And I'm going to show you what it means now to get an ECD because it's a whole different world. Um, uh, so let's go to the new-ish allocation system. It's been going for a couple of years now, and we have some idea who's getting transplanted. So it was hoped when the system got started that it would 
add approximately 8,000 additional life years to the whole system. Um, it was supposed to, and it has actually quite successfully, allowed improved access for moderately and very highly sensitized candidates. Um, and one thing I can tell you is, um, historically, men got transplanted at a much higher rate than women. And that has gone away by, getting rid of the, uh, by giving more priority for sensitized patients. So it has had that effect. But the problem is, is now, and we'll hear from the panel probably, that some people think maybe we've gone too far that way. And I'll show you how come that is. Um, there's hopefully improved access for ethnic minority candidates. Um, and the way that that has been accomplished is by um, allowing A2 kidneys to go into B recipients. Um, many of the um, a, uh, people of Asian descent and um, people of African American, uh, of African descent actually, um, have blood our blood type B. So that was a, a strategy to get um, uh, more blood type B kidneys to them. And finally, um, this has not happened. It was supposed to maybe equalize um, waiting times on the waiting list nationally, regionally and nationally, and that simply has not happened. So um, how does the new policy work? In the old school, um, when a kidney a donor became available, um, they were placed into four categories, mostly standard criteria donors. Then there was the extended criteria donors, those donors over the age of 60. There were um, um, do uh, donation by cardiac death versus by brain death. And then there was DCD-ECDs and DCDs standard criteria donors. Well, now what what's happened is a kidney becomes available, and there's something called a kidney donor profile index. And the kidney donor profile index is um, divided into four categories. Um, the best 20% of the kidneys, which is the low the KDPI score that's 20 or lower. Um, the mid-range, 21 to 34%, those are also really very high-quality kidneys. Um, then 35 to 85, which is now allocated to what's called the standard criteria donor, and then KDPI greater than 85%. And that is the new category of ECDs. Now, what, what is KDPI? KDPI is based, it's still driven by age, but a whole other lot of things go into it, including donor history of hypertension, donor history of diabetes. Our donors are getting older. They're getting sicker. Um, if the cause of death was from a CVA, if they are DCD, DCDs are slightly higher risk. And HCV, sorry, Dr. Terrell, I, I don't mean to take the wind out of your cells, but those kidneys are almost, if they're HCV positive, it almost puts them into the category of a KDP of 85 or higher. That is um, how significant HCV uh, impacts them. Just to look at what the KDPI means, if you look, if you go over to the... Um, uh, this category over here, 85 and greater, is the new ECDs. And this is looking at one-year graph success and two-year graph success. Um, so only 60% of the ECDs are functioning at two years, and that's in the average donor. That isn't in the higher-risk donor. That's in the average donor. So look at this. This is one, three, five, and eight-year data. And if you look, remember, KDPI greater than 85 are the new ECD categories. Look at the average one, three, five, and eight-year survival of those kidneys in an older patient. 
it's, uh, if we're getting over 90%, we're looking at five-year graphs of 50% and eight years of 33%. So we're really, uh, if your patient asks you, should I get an ECD kidney, not all ECD kidneys are the same. And um, the, <laughs> I actually am not sure whether we should be recommending them for patients with high cardiovascular risk. And let me just ask Dr. Freeze. Uh, Dr. Fries is, is pretty, um, uh, pretty much a proponent of using these kidneys. Uh, what would you say if you have a high-risk patient, a diabetic patient who's 70 years old and um, uh, is going on to dialysis, let's say 65, um, uh, has uh, maybe 20, you know, if you look at the, get an angiogram, and it has 20 to 30% lesions in his, in his coronary arteries, uh, but nothing that we would put a stent into. Um, and uh, they come through for evaluation. Would you tell them to get an ECD kidney? Yes. Why? I mean, well, because of their predicted mortality on the wait list. So by choosing the option of, of a high KDPI kidney, they basically are improving their chances of survival because they'll hopefully be transplanted a little bit sooner. Uh, let's ask uh, Dr. Krishna. Yeah, I completely, completely agree with um, what Chris said. I think his uh, life on dialysis is going to be miserable. Even the extra advantage he derives by being on the list and getting a chance at the kidney uh, definitely outweighs the life quality of life and quantity of life on dialysis. So, Dr. Weber, you are more conservative. Well, in this think? case, though, I agree. Uh, okay. For sure, I would accept this. Can and and Janine? Oh, agree with all the. Three. Okay, all right, 100%. all right. So we we've established that. I don't know if that I do agree with that because I think uh, patients with high cardiovascular risk factors who get these marginal kidneys don't always do so well. Keep in mind those numbers were for the Dr. Vincente. In other words, in the first two years, they have the worst survival, and then they equilibrate to, to what it would be on dialysis. So the benefit take much longer to occur. They're not right away. So you would want to use that in a high cardiovascular risk patient? No, all I mean in a, a high cardiovascular risk patient who received an ECD type of kidney, it takes a much longer nice. to get back to the baseline of equal survival as on dialysis. Two years. Yes. Okay. So you okay. Well, let's let, let's keep moving because I have some um, specific um, cases here now. Um, this is uh, remember I told you that a kidney comes in and it's we calculate the KDPI. And then the rank list comes to us. The rank list is generated by UNOS according to the KDPI of the kidney, and it's different for different kidneys. Sequence A is the best kidneys, the top 20%. The top 20% of kidneys are now allocated to the top 20% of recipients based on what's called the estimated post-transplant survival. Now, what's that? So... Um, estimated post-transplant survival is looking at ver four very basic things. It's, it's calculated on the, on the recipient's age, driven heavily by age, the time on dialysis, 
The longer you're on dialysis, the poorer your score. Whether you've had a prior organ transplant, because those patients don't do as well, and your diabetes status. That is all that goes into that calculation, but it really drives the score quite a bit. So the top 20% of those patients are now going to get the top 20% of kidneys. The good news for that is, is that most of those patients don't need that extensive a workup. So, you know, they can just come to the top of the list. Now, how has that worked? Well, the longevity matching certainly, it, it, well, it did benefit uh, Mr. Hafner um, until um, uh, recently, I guess. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think for our patients, I'm not sure if that's, still, if that's quite true. I, I think the system really, uh, we, we need to do a better job of matching the donor to the recipient. So with the new allocation system, no longer is the waiting time the only factor that's driving who comes to the top of the list. And we've gotten better at trying to figure out who that is. And we need to give you the information of which patients that are on your list are going to be moving to within target range of getting a kidney transplant. Um, And that's something we've got to do better with you. Um, and, and then, uh, in turn, I think we can get your patients ready in case we get the call. Um, so, um, but what are some of the consequences? Uh, marginal kidneys may not get listed. Um, I'm saying marginal candidates may not get listed now because um, waiting time starts with the time of the initiation of dialysis. So... If your patient is on dialysis and you think, oh, I'm not sure they're going to make it to transplant, we don't have to list them because they're not going to lose the waiting time. It's based on the time that they start dialysis. The caveat is you can get the patient listed when their GFR drops below 20. So you should be referring your patients when their GFR drops below 20 because we can, we can they can start to accumulate waiting time. Um, and the other thing that you have to realize is that patients receiving KDPI kidneys greater than 85% uh, may have a poorer outcome. So now, keeping that in mind, um, uh, we're getting, an, a, we have 5,000 5, people on the waiting list about now. Um, and Dr. Fries, how many of those patients, if they have diabetes um, and they're age 60 or greater, how many will make it to the top of the list? One out of ten. Okay, so keeping that in mind, um, I'm going to ask everybody, um, I'll, I'm going to go down our panel and ask, and then I'm sort of get a hand, hands in the audience. Um, our first recipient is a 48-year-old obese type 2 diabetic male. He's been on hemodialysis for one year and has a BMI of 44. Um, should we list uh, these recipients? Hey, Chris, let's start with you. Well, no, we wouldn't list this. I mean, by our protocol, we wouldn't list this patient. Whether we should or not, it's another question. But by our protocol, we wouldn't because he can, his waiting time is going to continue to um, accumulate, basically, backdated to when he started dialysis. So, uh, Sorry, thanks. So there's no advantage to necessarily putting him on the list. And he's well outside of our BMI criteria for transplant. Which so, is what? Uh, for a diabetic, it would be 36, I think is what, 34, okay, 34. Maybe someday it'll be 36, but 34 now. And so, you know, we would advise this patient that, you know, weight loss is going to be important. We'd help him, you know, with some 
referrals to bar our bariatric surgeons if, if uh, that worked out. And then to come back uh, and he could be activated and worked up when his BMI is within our criteria. And he won't be disadvantaged by losing waiting time on the list because it'll be backdated to his dialysis. What if his GFR was 19, not on dialysis? So um, we would want to think about listing him. Again, in our program, he wouldn't meet the criteria to get listed. So okay. by our protocol. Pass the microphone down. I, I agree. He shouldn't be listed at this point unless he's volunteering for gastric bypass. So do you Some, refer your patients for gastric bypass? Yes. Yes, I do. Great. I, I, think, I think the chance, Sandy. Oh, okay. So we'll hear more. <laughs> plugging your your plugging your talk already, Doctor Fang. Uh, doc between you and dinner and drinks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Doctor Well, so we'll hear more about that. Um, I agree. That's our protocol. Is um, if they're on dialysis, certainly with this BMI, we would not be listing them. We are a little bit more lenient in terms of our. Um, listing criteria if they're not on dialysis because of um, the fact that they would be losing time if their GFR is less than 20. Um, but overall, I would actually like to use this as an opportunity to have our referring nephrologists identify the fact that any of your patients who are obese, um, it would be uh, a jump start for them if you, uh, again, encourage them to start losing weight uh, educate them that there are weight criteria at transplant centers, and you know once they hit, uh, you know once they're getting closer to dialysis or even before then, encouraging them to lose the weight so that when they get to see us, they're already halfway, if not all the way, there um, in terms of having had their surgery or having lost the weight. It would certainly aid in them getting transplanted sooner if they know, because a lot of patients don't necessarily know that there is BMI criteria, and the earlier they know the earlier they can get transplanted. So, Janine, let me ask you a, a slightly different question. How many of the patients that you see that have diabetes uh, that are on dialysis with a BMI of 44 actually lose the weight to get listed? Well, part of my role is also working with patients that are at the top of the list, and I need to start their workups to get them ready for transplant, and we actually see quite a number of patients that have been put on the list and they percolated to the top of the list, and they have not lost the weight. And it's a real challenge and, you know, time-consuming for coordinators to, you know, we try and start tackling them a year before, you know, they're to the top, and um, tell them that we're going to remove them if they haven't lost the weight. And then here we go a year later, and it hasn't budged. And it's a real challenge because our protocols are getting stricter, so now we're being asked to actually remove them from the waiting list if they haven't lost the weight. And um, we're getting some pushback from physicians saying, no, no, leave them on. So it's tough. Um, so then that first example, when you know we want to put patients on that are overweight, I don't know if it's such a good idea because many of them are not losing weight. So... Um one of the things that um, you, you need to understand is uh, we're not being draconian about this, but we're monitored by uh, the regulatory agencies for death on the wait list. 
Um, and so, Chris, does if, if I'm, I believe there's we get dinged um, for uh, for that for a death on the wait list. Is that right? Correct. So, um, when you look on the in the SRTR, the Scientific Registry, you can go on it anytime you want and uh, see which what, what our um, transplant rate is. You can look at um, uh, deaths on the wait list, and you can look at our outcomes. And um, all of that is factored in. And if you get in certain ranges, we, we can get into a lot of trouble um, because of Medicare funding. So, um, uh, you know, we, we want to we do what's right for the patients, um, but we also are being held accountable. And so we have, to, we have to look at that pretty closely. So let me go to recipient number two. Um, we have a type 2 diabetic female with coronary artery disease. She's 73 years old. She has two stents in. She has no potential living donors. She's blood type O, and she's on CAPD. Um, Dr. Krishna, what do you think? Uh, this is a tough one. Yeah. Uh, she has severe coronary artery disease, and given the current waiting time in our area, I don't think it really matters. She's never going to make it. So um, let me ask you another question. What if she had a living donor? Should we, should we, should we move in that direction quickly? Yeah, uh, depends on who the living donor is. If she wants to take a kidney from her... Um, Grandchild. No. Okay. The answer is definitely no. But if it's from a neighbor who is also 70 years old, that's different. <laughs> Yeah, I, we just did a transplant yesterday, uh, husband and wife in their late 60s, so that, that might be a little bit more appropriate. Um, uh, well, let's keep going, because uh, we got a lot to, 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 to do. I think, um, I think right now we're telling patients, let me ask Janine one more question. How long, how long are patients waiting for an ECD if they're blood type O? For blood type O, ECD, uh, probably right now, eight, five, eight years. Five, eight yeah, years. It's... That's for an 85% or greater KDPI, okay? So but, you, you would say living donor only then? Yes. And in Dr. Krishna, when he talked about the young granddaughter um, to the grandmother, he would say no. I would actually say yes and mm -hmm. put them in the NKR and... Um, Mm. Do it that way. And we so, just recently did so, that. So can you explain that in a little bit more depth, Janine? Yeah. So you uh, was a young granddaughter in her 20s. And the grandmother was 72, I think, 72, 73. And I think our group felt that, you know, that's too young, but perhaps put them into the NKR so the young granddaughter could advantage a recipient, you know, who's young in the NKR. And um, they were very happy to do that and went on to be transplanted just last week. Wow. Well, that's, a, very that's short a, time, a short wait in the NKR. Yeah. Okay, well, th <laughs> th th thank you for that. Um, then um, let's uh, do uh, recipient number three. Um, and I'll st we'll start with Dr. Weber on this one. A 32-year-old with a history of graft loss secondary to noncompliance at the age of 30. Back on hemodialysis. So these cases uh, kind of kill me a little bit. Um, one thing about the allocation system that I struggle with in terms of 
um, transplanting the very highly sensitized patients is a lot of the reason, uh, the majority of the reason those patients are highly sensitized is from a previous transplant. And in a larger portion of those cases, they lost their grafts to noncompliance potentially. And so these are patients that are now advantaged to be getting their second transplant, highly sensitized um, over other people who've never had a chance at a transplant. Um, and in some cases, um, they're noncompliant. So we have a very, um, we have a, uh, procedures in place to uh, where our social workers evaluate these cases. They evaluate whether they feel the patient has insight into their past behaviors, if they um, seem contrite, if they've demonstrated compliance um, with dialysis. We look at uh, their phosphorus levels. We look at, we call the dialysis units to find out if they've actually been showing up, have they been trying to cut their treatment short. Um, have they been compliant with their medical regimen? And then we do the best we can to make um, uh, the right decision about whether we can go ahead, they're ready, uh, they can go ahead and be transplanted, or whether they need to sh demonstrate more compliance. We put them on a compliance plan uh, for six months or so, and then we reevaluate them again. So uh, on the one hand, this person is 32 years old. Uh, they're very young, they have a long life to live, and you want to give them a chance. Um, Noncompliance is by far the highest in the adolescent to 20-year-old population. Um, so it's possible this person um, uh, was very young at the time of their first transplant. So for the most part, we do. We give them a chance if they've demonstrated compliance. Um, and so for that reason, if they clear our protocol, I would transplant this person. Is there, I know we have some social workers here. Hi, do you, do you guys have any? Ah, there you guys are. You have any comments about about this? What do you think about a twenty year old who just just stopped taking meds? So one other question: What what about um, and, and and we see this. Every year, four or five times. What about insurance ran out? Is that a different story? No, I think the same thing is looking for more stable insurance and um, better communication. So we do have tools to address loss of insurance, but often we just don't even, we never heard about it the first time in our clinic. So I think we're looking for, we are here to help you, but you need to tell us what's going on so we can do that. Again, demonstrating that understanding of how you would address an insurance issue and how you manage that component of your health care in addition to taking medications, going through your lab, things like that. Thank you. Okay, so let's, let's go on to this last patient. 55-year-old, um, uh, smokes cigarettes, two packs per day, has type 2 diabetes, has a BMI of 32, meets our criteria, on hemodialysis. List? Let's start with Dr. Krishna. Uh, this is a no-brainer. No. <laughs> Dr. Fries. This patient didn't even make it by the secretary at the front desk. It would have been screened out. Okay. Um, what if I told you that this 55-year-old um, uh, has, a, has a GFR of 20, and we might be able to preempt dialysis with living donors? And now he's been screened out because he smokes cigarettes, and the, this 
person may, might not have known that smoking is a contraindication to transplant. Well, he'll know after he's turned down that he has to be off cigarettes for six months, and if he has all those great opportunities, it's in his hands to get off the cigarettes, and then he can call us at six months. But you're so open-minded in some ways and so closed-minded in others. Um, how, how, many, how many of you in the audience think that we should just go away until they are done, uh, till they've, um, till they've stopped smoking? How many say yes? How many say no? Oh, my God. Please. And that way we engage them in the process. Otherwise, I'm afraid they're, go- they're out in, in, in no man's land. That's my concern. And I, you know, I don't know. Y- yes, sir? Does smoking include vaping? Uh, well, that is another good question because uh, the, the, I don't know if any of you heard that. Does smoking include vaping? And what about marijuana use? It's legal now. So um, I don't know. I, um, what, what about marijuana? This guy's uh, just smoked pot twice. Edibles? Dr. Fries, what about that? Well, well, I mean, you know, I think our policy reads sort of tobacco products. You know, it it definitely gets a little fuzzy, especially with the change in the California laws. But, you know, I think certainly if they're a a daily inhaling marijuana user, we would probably have the same recommendation, that they got to be off for six months. Well, I Um, I can tell you I uh, evaluated one gentleman who was a high-end executive, uh, came in with his wife who wanted to donate and um, uh, admitted to smoking marijuana recreationally once in the previous year, and we didn't list him. Um, that's a, that's a I'm lot. not kidding you. Um, that's draconian. I, I, I agree. Okay, so there's... there's um, yes, sir. Yes, please. How about you just VMI 34, I mean 36? Would you list them or not? I mean, are you that's a that's a very important point. The the for those of you who didn't hear, what if it, the patient number one's BMI was thirty six? And I'm going to throw that back. Let's make it thirty seven because that's just above our our cutoff. Dr. Fries. So, so um, we've changed our protocol recently to, first off, they're on hemodialysis. Again, they're not being disadvantaged in terms of losing waiting time. So, and we aren't going to transplant them until they meet our weight um, cutoff. So, sure, they could sit on the list, nothing's going to happen to them. It really doesn't make a difference. But the, the trickier question is if they aren't on dialysis. And there we will allow for patients who are above our transplant BMI to go onto the list as long as they're not, you know, super obese. I mean, a BMI of 44, they aren't going to get on any kind of list. 
Um, and then, you know, we'll tell them they got to lose the weight until they, before they can be activated and move forward with transplant. Because there, if, they're, if their GFR is less than 20, you don't want them to be disadvantaged and miss out on that wait time. So th thank you for those comments. I, th I think they're important. Um, uh, yes, sir. Surgical in-person decisions. I do find some of these are—I well, won't call it draconian, but then numerically based. When surely as a surgeon, you're going to see patients say, "No, I can do that one." Can you repeat the question? So, so yeah, that, that's a very important yes. point. I'm glad you brought you that up. The, so, can you repeat the so question? So, it was a question about what really you're asking the validity of BMI yes. as a as a flat you know, rule out, rule in type thing. And, you know, you get the weightlifter whose BMI may be 36. They're very fit. Um, you know, we may have some leeway for that. And, you know, it's the same on the donor side. You know, there are uh, specific uh, cases where surgeon judgment or our team's judgment will trump what those um, hard cutoffs are. Yeah, and, and I think that's a, a very important point because, um we see a lot of patients from the Hawaiian Islands, uh, the Samoans, who are we call big boned, and um, uh, BMI is not a fair assessment. So I, I, I think um, in questionable cases, I have to say that our nephrology colleagues will sometimes call us in and say, "Would you do this?" So that that's an important point. Can I make a point, Peter? Yeah, um, yes. So I'm sorry. This whole obesity paradox puts dialysis nephrologists in a very difficult spot. So at the end of the day, if his BMI is 36, 37, he has a relative advantage in surviving while he's on dialysis. Mm. And how do I go and tell him he needs to lose weight very rapidly when his chances are at best 1 in 10 of getting a kidney? That is a, a sobering, sobering um, question, and I, um, I'm going to let Allison answer that one. <laughs> well, I think, again, there's always opportunities to educate patients about how to get them transplanted sooner, and I think that's the key part there. I mean, if you have a patient who's got no living donors, um, and you're right, and they're diabetic, uh, they've got a 1 in 10 chance of, of actually getting a kidney transplant, um, but that would be a great opportunity for you to say and remind them that uh, a living donor uh, would uh, get them transplanted right away, that uh, living donors don't have to be family members. They could be friends. They could be colleagues, encouraging them to get the word out. What things that I always say to my patients is have somebody send out a mass email on your behalf if you're comfortable with that. If you're part of a synagogue or a church or a community center, having somebody announce it on your behalf if you're comfortable with that. These are concepts that patients don't always think about. Social media, that would be a great opportunity for you to say, you know, given your circumstances, you're at very, you know, low, low chance of you actually getting a deceased donor transplant. You really need to think about living donation, how you can uh, potentially start that conversation with them and, and let them know the statistics. That would be the best way to go. Um, if they lost weight and they had a living donor, we could transplant them right away. Yeah, I, I think um, we're going to hear this as a recurrent theme throughout today because the face of our waiting list is changing. It is increasing. It's increasing everywhere in the country. It's, we're hardest hit here, but it's everywhere. And we really have to rethink this, and we really, um, I think, have to push living donation. And um, there are some people out there who have donors, and they say, oh, we're not compatible. 
age mismatch, and I think it's a new world, and we have paired exchanges, and, and uh, as Janine mentioned, and uh, these are things we have to think about. So, um, Can I say one more thing, Peter? I mean, yeah, there's always sure. a lot of hesitation. You have a person who has children, and they don't want their children. They always say, I don't want them to donate. I don't want them to donate. I don't want them. And you know, some things that I always say is, you know, we do a thorough evaluation of all of our donors. We do CAT scan. We do blood tests. We do urine tests. And if we see anything that's at all alarming, we rule them out as donors. And sometimes that's very helpful for them to hear that we do an extensive workup, physical exam, blood tests, everything, and that we're very strict and we're very conservative overall. And if we find anything alarming, we won't accept them as a donor. And sometimes patients will hear that and they'll hear that they get a thorough workup and they'll feel a little differently. So that's another thing when I hear a patient saying, I don't want, my ch- I don't want to harm my family member, I don't want to harm my loved one you know, what I tell them. And, and those are things that you can also tell your patients who have those hesitations that we do such an extensive workup and we turn people down if we see anything that's, uh, that we think is too high risk. Thank you. So, um, uh, Dr. Vincenti, whenever you want to give me the hook, give me the hook. I won't be offended. It would stop me at 15 minutes because I have about five more cases to talk about. And so just, I won't be offended. Okay, so... Um, <clears throat> Patients who are highly sensitized now are getting a huge advantage. Um, Not only are they giving points, and I'll show you what those points are in a second, um, but they also are getting exposed to kidneys across the country. So if they have a PRA, a calculated PRA of 100%, we used to never get those patients transplanted. Now, if they have a PRA of 100%, they get 200 points, the equivalent of 200 years of waiting time which puts them right to the top of the list, and it puts them to the top of the national list. So their chance of finding a compatible kidney with a PRA of 100%, um, and, and Raj is not speaking this year, but um, is, is very high for some patients with 100% PRA. Um, if they have a calculated PRA of 99%, they get regional. Region 5 is the whole West Coast. Um, they get regional priority. And look at the number of points they're getting now. It used to be four points for highly sensitized patients. Now it's, um, it goes all the way up to 200 points. Um, but if your CPRA is above 85%, you're getting two, four, six points. That each year of waiting is one point. So you get some idea of the great priority of patients that are highly sensitized. So these are patients on your list that we will call you, we'll let you know, they are moving to the top of the list, time to get the cardiac workup. Um, now, I have to tell you in the same breath that, um, actually, I'll, I'll ask Janine. Janine, what do you think about the number of highly sensitized patients that are popping up on your, uh, when, whenever you're on call, how many patients are highly sensitized at the top of the list? I take call usually one to two times a week, and probably every time I'm on call, we're bringing somebody in with a high CPRA. Um, I actually think the system's a little bit unfair currently because it seems like those are the only patients coming in for transplant are these high CPR patients um, who are newly evaluated and they're being called in for transplant within six months. Um, So it's gotten a little hard for me in the last year sort of seeing this time and time. I actually think the system, they should have to wait um, you know, two to four years before they start to gain these points because it's, you know, if yeah, they're drawing I, an offer so quickly, then it just doesn't yeah, seem right. I, 
So uh, you're 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 not alone with that that um, complaint, um, uh, and uh, the uh, UNOS committee has been asked to reevaluate the amount of priority highly high high PR patients get. In the same breath, I'll tell you um, that I have seen some patients uh, get transplanted that have been sitting on the list forever. And uh, really, um, it, it's so neat to see that um, we're, we're doing better in that category. So I think it um, needs to be reevaluated. Um, so just from our perspective, we get a high PR patient. We'll let you know that there's a good chance they're going to get called. This is how it is now, and we want to advantage your patients. Um, so we'll do a full evaluation at that time. Um, waiting time definition is expanded. We talked about that back to the time of dialysis. Um, although patients still can still be preemptively listed. Okay, pediatric offers. I see the pediatric folks really shaking their heads with the highly sensitized patients because we've seen a little bit of a problem in getting our pediatric patients transplanted. Um, pediatric patients are entitled, they go pretty high on the list with sequence A and sequence B kidneys. Um, uh, but um, in general, uh, in California, the pediatric Folks have been um, uh, not doing as well as the rest of the country, but that is consistent with the rest of our waiting list. The other thing is KDPI kidneys greater than 85% were being allocated regionally, and the hope was that those kidneys would now get picked up and used more often. Uh, In fact, um, this has been very problematic because these marginal kidneys are getting to the site where they've been allocated, and then the, and then the surgeons are going, oh, I don't want this kidney for my patient. Um, so now they're rethinking, um, rethinking that as well. So now we're going to go to about four or five clinical scenarios to, to show you what the waiting list, what pops up on the waiting list when we get a given kind of a donor. Um, so here's our first donor. Uh, panel, you need to pay attention to this. Uh, this is a 38-year-old male. Five foot five, 80 kilograms, blood type O, is declared brain dead following head trauma from a skiing uh, injury up in Tahoe. He previously was healthy with no significant medical history. His terminal creatinine is 1.3 with a KDPI of 21%. So this is not a top 20% kidney, but a top 21% kidney. Um, serologies are negative for CMV, HBV, HCV, and HIV. So this is a sequence. C, no, sequence B kidney. This 38-year-old deceased donor kidney from a local donor is allocated to a 72-year-old unsensitized Caucasian woman whose blood type O who just got listed because she's a zero mismatch. Zero mismatches still get priority um, locally, locally only. Would you accept this offer, Dr. Weber? This is when I'm very thankful that our surgeons are the ones who have to uh, deal with these kind of questions in the middle of the night. Um, well, hold that thought then, yeah. because let me, let me just ask you something. Um, let me ask you the next question. The second patient on the list is a 36-year-old male with end-stage renal failure secondary to glomerulonephritis. Would you skip the 72-year-old to give this 38-year-old donor kidney to the younger recipient listed at your center? I mean, I think this goes back to your justice utility question, and I voted utility, and I would probably skip it and give it to the 38-year-old recipient. Dr. Fries, what would happen to you if you did that? What would happen to me? Yeah, (laughs) legally. Well, it it depends if someone, you know, found out about it. But uh, (laughs) first of all, I, I... 
<laughs> I, I, um, I would give it to the 72-year-old because that's what our allocation rules are. And, and so, you know, we're, we're I, I mean, I don't know about the legal ramifications of skipping. You can always say it's medical judgment. But, I mean, let's say that, that 72-year-old the, the next day, you know, gets a, a, a line infection and suddenly, they, you know, they pass away, you know, with a complication from from dialysis, and, that, and, and you've missed that opportunity to extend that person's life. I mean, there, there's all sorts of these scenarios that can come up, and I think it's simplest just to use the rules that are out there, and if we don't like the rules, we should try and change them. Okay. Dr. Krishna, you're one of our referring doctors. Yeah. Um, the 72-year-old woman was your patient. If the system did allow it, would you, allow, would you say skip your patient and give it to the younger person? Uh, no, I think uh, you, you need to stick with the current format. Okay. All right. Well, we, we, we do, we do um, for legal reasons, because we could um, actually get sued for passing that patient. I think it's just um, interesting how we have our living donor pairs, that we put them in the NKR when there's this incompatibility from an age perspective. However, when this scenario comes up, we are, um, we're not allowed to do that. I think that's just kind of an interesting... Well, it's right. going to get a little bit trickier in, uh, with the next couple of cases. Um, so now we have a 56-year-old petite female, big smoker, five foot one, fifty kilos, um, no history of hypertension or diabetes. Um, ha- she has an MI though, and is resuscitated, but becomes brain dead secondary to anoxia. Her terminal creatinine is 1.5. The KDPI is 75 percent. So not an ECD, a standard criteria donor. The serologies are negative for HCV, HIV, and CMV. The donor team tells you the aorta had severe plaque. So we're in a sequence C, the standard, the real standard criteria donors. All right, you got the donor down? Okay. This 75% KDPI kidney is offered to a 42-year-old male, 6 feet, 95 kilos, with ESRD secondary to glomerulonephritis. He's unsensitized. He's been waiting seven years for a kidney. Would you accept this offer, Janine? Well, I would give the information to the surgeon on call and hope that they <laughs> would pass on <laughs> the one because size, I would point out, start my um, presentation to the surgeon with the size right off the bat. And um, seven years of waiting time. Uh, this is probably, I'm going to say it's a blood type A. So yeah. they're close to the top of the list and would do better uh, probably with the next donor that becomes available. So pass. Yes. Um, no, I would not give this information. To, I, so, that's the other interesting thing. They don't, well, let, let, let me ask. I, I was going to call on Dr. Fang because I'm tired of Dr. Freeze for right now. Uh, but doc, Dr. Fang, um, I'm going to get back to your point because it's really an important one. Um, Dr. Fang, it's 2 in the morning. You got the list. Janine, you're lucky if Janine is on call. She knows how to work the list pretty quickly. What do you ask Janine to find on the list? Because you can drop down as far as you want. What do you, what do you tell her? An old, small patient. So an old, small patient. Now, I mean, the previous donor was 50. I'd be interested. 
presenting creatinine as opposed to, you know, the maybe if the creatinine. So it doesn't have to be a 75-year-old, but it, it can't be a man who's 60, you know, tall and 200 pounds if it's 50 or older. You know, if it's the same age as the donor, the size mismatch is going so, to be So I think I would ask for a smaller, older person, too, because there's a small mass there. But Janine, how often, to, to your very important point, how often do the patients ask you, what kind of a kidney are you giving me? Not very often, but there is a handful of people that do. And um, when they do ask me, <laughs> I typically say we have to maintain you know, patient confidentiality, maintain the confidentiality of the donor and the donor family. We will provide the recipient the approximate age of the donor and whether they're male or female. Um, when it's an increased risk donor, that's different. I think we're we'll, we'll getting, get to that in yeah, a second. We'll get into that, but approximate age of donor and male or female. Do you, uh, let me ask you, uh, what, what do you think we should be telling the patients? What do you think is the right thing to do? Well, I, mean, I think that what we are discussing is uh, the conundrum that we should at least, if, if there is a discrepancy in size, you know, I think that is something that probably should be told. Yeah. yeah. I, so this, is, this is the main thing that, as everybody thinks, that the kidney should go to so we always we usually try to call the referring nephrologist if, if you happen to be on call and and frequently it's in the middle of the night and sometimes you know you're, you're obviously not call every night uh, but Janine if the referring nephrologist asks you these questions you you can tell them what kind of a kidney it is correct yes. mm -hmm. and in some detail so those are questions that you, you ought to ask I I personally think you ought to ask um, hope, yes sir Judgment. That has to come from a medical professional. My company is an attending physician or from somebody else in the middle of the night. But we can overload patients with information that means nothing to them if we're not satisfying our ethical responsibilities. Absolutely. And, 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 and I, that is a, that's so important. And that's why we really need your involvement in a big way. Because the information they're getting from us is, is limited um, by definition. I mean, we, 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 don't, we see them at the time of an evaluation and as they're coming to the top of the list. So we really do need your help with that. And, but I agree with you that we, there's some, there's too much, we have to focus our information on what's appropriate for the patient. Yes, sir. Peter, can, can I? Yes. So, if I'm the nephrologist on call um, and you ask me, the question I would ask you is, in a small woman, creatinine of 1.5 with atheromatous plaque, admitting creatinine of 1.5, uh, that's pretty bad. Yes. So uh, do we ever have the luxury of getting a biopsy, see how many glomps are viable? Yeah, we, we do, uh, and we would do that. If I was the surgeon on call on this night, I would have asked for, I asked for a biopsy before I put it in. But there's a problem with asking for biopsies sometimes. Like Chris, you want to talk? Uh, uh, you would you ask for a biopsy? Um, I mean, you know, it, there's a lot of complicating factors that go into that decision. In this case, if you had a 
you know, a small um, uh, recipient, older probably than this donor, I don't think I'd ask for a biopsy because I think that's a, a very reasonable kidney for that person. In other words, the kidney looks like that patient. Um, the, the real problem we run into with biopsies is all the high KDPI kidneys, um, you know, a, a fair number of them do get biopsies, which by definition we know are going to be abnormal, and then you're left with interpreting what level of abnormalness are you willing to deal with, and, and there's a huge range in that um, comfort level, and so a lot of the kidneys end up getting discarded that might have, you know, worked just fine. So so biopsies are are helpful in certain situations, but I think in kidneys where you can predict that the biopsy is going to look abnormal, I like to use other features, you know, such as the, the terminal creatinine. And, you know, by definition, it's usually going into a patient who's more desperate to receive the kidney. So uh, a lot of times I won't ask for biopsies in high KDPI kidneys. But we have, we have a wide spectrum of practice. Of that other question, I agree most patients can't interpret, but I say that at least from the ECD, and now maybe I'm thinking more of the very high KDPIs, I'm generally are involved in a conversation of that, or the able patient have preset that question. To ask us question, you couldn't tell them. Maybe that's only um, for the class C and not the. Because I actually have someone right now who is. He's 64 or 5, but he looks like he's 50, and he's doing fine. He can wait a long time. Right. I, I think I would tell that. Yeah, I, I, I would... Um, uh, I personally uh, would, would would agree. I would tell your patient, if say he was 60, looking like he was uh, uh, 50, I would I would not accept an ECD kidney for him. I would tell I would advise him against it. I would advise him for an infectious high risk kidney, which we'll get to in a second. Sandy, you had a comment. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that presenting creatinine is actually really important, especially if you have a story where you know the ambulance came and they were in the ED in you know an hour. Because I think that's more reflective, quote unquote, of the baseline, and I think that's. Because I think the flip side of the coin, just like Chris said, you know this kidney is not going to be perfect. So getting biopsies, especially the presenting creatinine 0.8 or 1.0, is only going to help you not use the kidneys, right? But I think the flip side is we have a lot of young donors who have a KDPI of 60%, but have a presenting creatinine 1.5 to 1.8. And you see that there's like horrible vessel disease because they are completely undiagnosed. And so, I, you know, often the presenting creatinine is important to interpret the terminal creatinine. Thank you. So let's go on to um, um, I don't want to do this one. Sure. Um, so that KBPI kidney of 75% standard criteria. Class C is offered to a 56-year-old female, five foot, 55 kilograms, with end-stage failure secondary to hypertension. She's unsensitized. Has been waiting seven years for a kidney. Um, what do you think of this one, uh, Dr. Krishna? It's your patient now. 
I would. I would. Dr. Fries? I would too. Wouldn't wouldn't hesitate actually. Dr. Weber. Yep. Looks perfect. Janine. Yes. <laughs> I would hesitate. I would hesitate, but um, you wouldn't even put it in that smoker that you got on the list. <laughs> Fifty-six years old. She's waited seven years, and she's getting an ECD-ish kidney. Oh. Okay. All right. So let's go on to uh, Dr. Vincenti is giving me the hook. So. Um, I want to go to this one. This will be the last one. Um, I'm going to skip the infectious high-risk donors, and I'm just going to tell you, if you talk to your patients about anything, to expedite time to transplant, in one second, I would tell you to advise them to take an infectious high-risk donor. These are donors that test negative for HIV, hepatitis, test negative for everything, but they happened to come from somebody, an IV drug abuser who died with a needle in their arm. Those are high, high, high risk, higher risk, which means about one in 1,000 is the number of uh, false positives in, in somebody who's actively shooting drugs or men having sex with men. False negatives. So, false negatives. So, um, Make sure you tell your patients that those are good kidneys because I don't think I don't think I can't remember one kidney that we've transplanted into a, from the infectious high risk category um, that has actually transmitted disease. Uh, include yes, sir. Oh yeah, your your patient has to sign a consent for that. And for, if it's two in the morning and the coordinator is running down the list, if they haven't consented to um, uh, uh, infectious high risk. They won't even be offered the kidney. Um, no, um, we inform them the class of the KDPI. But we would tell you. I mean, if you if we called like like um, the it was just you know mentioned, we give the KDPI to the patient. They won't know what that means, but it, it should mean something to you. And 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 then you you could say, oh, I don't know, you know. Um, so um, just the, this last case, um, uh, we, do, we get a real ECD kidney. It's a 69-year-old uh, woman with a history of hypertension who died from a CVA. The donor team tells you that there's adherent fat and a markedly atherosclerotic aorta. The terminal creatinine is 1.7. KDPI, 85%. ECD in the new system. All serologies are negative. So that is sequence D. So this ECD kidney... Patient is, your patient has consented to an ECD kidney, is allocated to a 55-year-old diabetic male. 55-year-old diabetics can be list for ECDs. They've consented to receive an ECD kidney, and has been, he's been waiting three years and now is at the top of the ECD list. Would you accept this offer? Dr. Fries. Uh, I mean, this one's a little harder, you know, because of the size mismatch is the only reason I'd hesitate. Um, you know, age-wise, he's a diabetic, you know, high risk for mortality. 
on dialysis. So accepting a, an, an ECD makes or a high KDPI makes sense. I'm not worried about the arterial sclerosis or, uh, on the aorta. You know, a lot of times the renal arteries are fine. Um, I mean, this may be a case if you really felt strongly you wanted to use it in this particular patient, you might want to get a biopsy, and it might sway you one way or the other. That's one option. Yes. So uh, the terminal... The terminal creatinine is what's used in the calculation of the KDPI. Yeah, well, that's a good point. That's a good question. Dr. Fang just brought that up. She would agree with you. She would agree with you. Yeah. Well... Yes. So I don't know if, if, if you've heard that. The, the, the point is, is that we really should not be using terminal creatinine, but the emission creatinine. Um, so that's, that's, a UNOS, uh, that's a UNOS policy thing, and I'm not sure how they came to that, to be honest with you. Yes, Elizabeth. At the discussion of the OPO to allow you to use both kidneys to override the size uh, um, so Can we use both kidneys in one patient? Yes, for really high KDPI kidneys with low, low GFR, um, I forget what the number is, but at some number, they will allocate them as dual transplants. And we've done, Dr. Hiroshi is the, the king of those. He's done seven uh, dual kidneys. But keep in mind, putting in two marginal kidneys into an atherosclerotic vessel um, in a high-risk patient, you, you're doubling the complication rate, um, but yes, that is a possibility. So, Dr. Krishna, do you have a, you? What were you going to say about this patient? Yeah, for vast majority of my patients, I would say yes. Mm. Nine out of ten patients. I, I, I would like to embellish this a little bit. Um, I wish there is a better system for the recipients rather than accepting ECD or not. I have fifty-year-olds who are on the last leg of their vascular axis. And you may or may not know that, and I may not be the one on call. Or I may have a patient, maybe 50 years old, doing miserable on dialysis. So nine out of ten times, I would take any kidney. Yeah. So um, that's really interesting and, and, and really good to hear, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure Dr. Fries is just smiling hearing that because he would agree with you. I... Um, is there a way that information can be conveyed to us? Yeah, so, 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 that so that, that... Th that's the question. Um, I, I, I think um, I'm going to stop now, but yes. So I'm going to make a suggestion. And um, uh, and that is, um, I, I think we need to do better on our end communicating to you when your patients are coming to the top of the list. So you have to, we have to give you this list. And then you can look at that list and say, this patient is, you know, we, this patient is in trouble. And we need to do better. So I think on our end, we, we're, we're, we're just sort of now figuring out which patients are popping up at the top of the list with this new allocation system. 
So I think, Allison, to, to address your issue of how can we do better, I think that's how we can do better to, 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 to improve our communication with all of you. Um, and, 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 and we can do as, as good as we can do. Um, but I think, that's, I think that's the answer. We have to um, uh, uh, have the right referring docs <laughs> attached to the patients and then give you that list. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.